Hey everyone, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. If you wish to know more about us, please visit our website at newmarketalliance.ca. As the COVID pandemic comes to an end, we encourage you to come check us out in person if you can. No matter how good a podcast is, being in the company of people and experiencing the community of our church is much better. At Mac, we meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You can expect free coffee, tea, snacks, a warm smile, and a friendly face. And with that, let's go ahead and listen to this week's sermon. We just watched a clip of Demi Lovato performing at the Grammys last year. Four days after, oh, one second. <laughs> okay. Four days after recording that song, Demi overdosed and she nearly died. As you know, most pop stars are always surrounded by teams and crews of people. But if those lyrics are a true depiction of how Demi felt, Demi felt totally alone, like no one was coming to help her. And yeah, nobody was listening, not even God, as Demi cried and cried for help. Have you ever felt that kind of loneliness? Like your world is imploding in on you and no one is coming to help. You're wanting someone to come alongside you who understands you. You're searching for the light at the end of the tunnel. And you're praying for some improvement in the circumstances, but things just get worse. And the situation is so bad, it's unbearable. You want to escape. You want to run away, but you don't even know where you'd go. Your prayers are getting more and more desperate, and you wonder if God even hears you, if he even sees you and sees what you're going through. If you remember going through that kind of loneliness, I celebrate that you have that victory and you've overcome it, and I'm thankful that you're here with us today. Um, in this church community where we're committed to walk with one another and share with each other's burdens. If you're in that thick of loneliness right now, I assure you that you're not alone. We want to be with you, and God is actually with you even if you don't recognize his presence. This summer, we've been going through a series called Cabin Fever, delving into themes of isolation and loneliness, And the obvious reason being that we've all been through some level of isolation in the past year and a half due to the pandemic. Well, for my husband and I, it hasn't actually been that bad. And that's not because everything's just been dandy and we're homebodies, because far from it, I'm a huge extrovert. I'm the type of person who would want to go out every day of my life and not have an issue with that. But the pandemic hasn't been that isolating for us because we just went through a season that was way worse. I had gone through several months of postpartum depression after having our son Joshua. Delivery was not smooth. My recovery process was really slow. Breastfeeding was very exhausting and our parents weren't around to help. And we were new to the area, so we hadn't found this church family at NAC yet. 
and we didn't have any family or friends close by to help in a pinch. And Joshua was a terrible sleeper, like regardless of whether he was in the bed or the stroller or the car. So for six months, I averaged like four hours of sleep every 24-hour day. And that's if you add up an hour here and 20 minutes there and 15 minutes there. I remember so many nights crying out to God for some help, for some sense of his presence, and I just felt like the room was empty except for me crying and my baby crying. I remember one time it had snowed really hard and the, plow the plows came by and left this huge bar at the end of the driveway. And Jason was in the middle of his night shifts. I knew that by the time he'd come home in the morning that that bar would freeze over, like it would harden. And I hadn't slept at all. So I brought my baby monitor out there and I was alone in the street shoveling that thing. I was still real weak from my delivery. And I felt so cold, so alone. I was filled with dark thoughts. I thought my family had abandoned me. They were vacationing out of the country. And I felt like God had abandoned me. All the new parents around me at the time were telling me they weren't having as bad as a time as I was. Well, of course I was blessed. I was blessed to have Joshua, who was alive and healthy. But I was disoriented. And I couldn't feel his presence, God's presence. I just felt alone and forsaken by God. I wanted to get out of the situation, but I felt trapped. I couldn't see past each waking moment. I couldn't imagine the future that one day Josh would not be a baby. <laughs> it wasn't logical. I know that. In a sense, I'd gone blind. I couldn't see hope. Prior, I had walked so closely with God, and I knew all his promises from scripture. But since I couldn't sense his presence, I just doubted all of it. I doubted him. Well, looking back now, I can see and I can affirm God was there. And I can retell that whole story, highlighting signs of God's care. And actually, some of them are here today. Thanks for coming. Um, but yeah, you can call it hormones or lack of sleep or whatever. As valid as my experience was, my perspective was flawed, right? Because the truth is, no matter what we're going through, God always sees us and hears us. We can't judge whether he's for or against us based on our circumstances. And actually, what I'm saying is really obvious from a third-party perspective. It's easy to tell someone that they'll be okay and actually believe it for them. But it's much harder to believe it for yourself when it's your life, when it's your relationship that's stuck in a vicious cycle, when it's your circumstances, you know all the ins and outs that make it impossible for a breakthrough. You know how long you've been praying for a miracle and it hasn't happened. 
But hey, if it's someone else, I know for me it's easier to pray for them and like have genuine faith that God will come through for them. After all, as Christians, we believe that God sides with the suffering, right? Jesus came to heal the sick, not the healthy. We believe that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And there's no exception, right? Well, today we're looking at a really hard story from the Bible. And it's hard for many reasons. I'll just give you three. One, because this person suffered serious isolation and abandonment. Two, her suffering was caused by God's people. And three, God had a part to play in it. This story is so hard that Christians today read it and actually reason that God rejected her. And there's this terrible word that evangelical Christians associate with this character. Mistake. Ugh. They say that this person's offspring is cursed to be the enemy of God's people forever. You know who I'm talking about. It's Hagar. So the quick Coles notes on the story is that God promised Abraham a son. But since his wife Sarah was barren... Abraham had a son through Hagar, who is Sarah's maidservant. And then it turns out that God's promise was actually for Sarah to have a son, so they just kicked Hagar and Ishmael out of the family. So there's an interpretation in the evangelical church today that says Abraham and Sarah made a mistake by impregnating Hagar in the first place. This interpretation teaches, oh, Abraham and Sarah should have been more patient, should have had more faith in God, and then Ishmael wouldn't have been born. This whole tragedy of sending them away would have been avoided. And the moral of the story is we should just learn from them, learn from their mistake, try not to take control of things, and trust in God's timing that he will provide. And I'm just curious, has anyone heard that before any... Yeah. Oh, it's more than I thought, right? Okay, so that's not good news for Hagar, is it? <laughs> like, what's the end of her story? Did she just innocently suffer till the end so that we could learn this lesson? And what does that mean for Ishmael to say, oh, he shouldn't have even been born? Are we saying that God's in the business of making a private club of people who enjoy the perks of being chosen by him. And then these people like Hagar and Ishmael, well, they're just not good enough to be hanging out with God's exclusive club. Well, let's back up and hear what God's word has to say about Hagar. And we're going to go through it really slowly, starting from Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham whose name was Abram at the time, to leave his country, his people, and his family, to go to the land that God will give him, where God will establish a huge family that will turn into a nation that will bless the whole world. Then the Bible says, Abraham took his wife, his nephew, all the people, and all the possessions that they had, and followed God. 
So it sounds like Abraham took a huge leap of faith to leave his country, but he also took all his family and his people and all his stuff. He was really wealthy. Okay, and then Abraham journeys from place to place to place. And if you pay attention, you'll see that he becomes wealthier and wealthier and more and more powerful because God is with him, protecting him and blessing him. On two separate occasions, Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife because she was so beautiful that he was afraid the local people would kill him and take her. And so obviously because of the lie, people thought she was single and they took Sarah to the leader of the country and God um, intervened and allowed Sarah to be released back to Abraham. And both times, the leader of the country gave Abraham lots of animals and lots of servants. So he became more powerful, more wealthy. And one of those times, Abraham received a lot of Egyptian servants, and presumably one of them was Hagar. Eventually, Abraham is in his mid-80s. He has an enormous estate, and he's childless. Then God assures him, oh, you will have numerous descendants. You will have a son to be your heir. But since Sarah is barren, she tells Abraham to sleep with Hagar so that Sarah could build a family through Hagar. Okay, let's just pause here and consider what's happened to Hagar so far. When Pharaoh gave Hagar to Abraham and Sarah, she was probably really young. The average age for a girl in ancient Egypt to get married is 12 or 13. So she would have definitely been younger than that when she became a maidservant in Abraham and Sarah's home. And can you imagine the type of isolation she must have felt when she left Egypt? It's not like Abraham who left with all his family and all his people. They probably maintained their culture and their language. But when Hagar left Egypt, she was leaving her family to never see them again. She was leaving her culture and everything she knew. And she was just a child to become a servant to these foreigners. The best case scenario for Hagar would be that Abraham and Sarah would turn out to be kind and gracious masters. But the Bible says Sarah, wanting to build her family, took her Egyptian slave and gave her to her husband. When you add up all the time clues from the various verses, Hagar's probably just a teenager at this point. And she's being used as sexual property, forced to sleep with her 85-year-old master. It's a hard story. After Hagar conceived and realized she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah. Well, I don't blame her. I can think of a lot of good reasons for that. There's one interpretation that sees Hagar as deserving of her suffering, which we will see will intensify. 
That interpretation says that Hagar was feeling smug about rising in the ranks to become Abraham's wife that will bear him his first child. But I imagine it real differently. I think that she felt betrayed by Sarah, whom she trusted. I think that when Sarah became her authority figure when she was just a kid, Sarah inadvertently became her maternal figure. I imagine that Hagar had started to consider this family as her own. And then all of a sudden, they turned into strangers that used her, used her body for their personal gain. And I imagine that home just didn't feel like home anymore. She was feeling isolated and helpless as the baby grew inside of her. The scripture doesn't confirm either way, but what happens next is undoubtedly terrible. Sarah complains to Abraham about Hagar's new disdain for her, and Abraham says this, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. And what does Sarah do? Sarah mistreated Hagar, and she fled. Mistreated. It's the same verb used to describe how the Egyptians oppressed and afflicted the Israelite slaves many years later. We don't know what form of abuse Hagar had to endure under Sarah, whether it was verbal, emotional, physical, etc. But being pregnant, like I'm biased, uh, a pregnant lady's really vulnerable. And Hagar was suffering so much that she ran away into the desert. I can tell you that I can barely take a neighborhood walk when it's 30 degrees outside but we're talking about at least 40 degrees in the Arabian desert. And this whole time, Sarah thinks she's in good relations with God, doing the right thing, because she has the audacity to say to Abraham, may the Lord judge between you and me. I mean, there's no doubt God is with Sarah, but does God condone what Sarah is doing to Hagar? Does he not care that Hagar has no one to protect her from her masters? Well, actually, God did care. He went out there and pursued her. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar and asked her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. God knew Hagar, God knew her name, God knew exactly who she was, where she was, and also why she was there. But God asked Hagar so she would realize for herself, she didn't know where she was going. She was running away from Sarah, but she didn't have a plan. She didn't have a plan to survive out there. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. What? <laughs> submit to Sarah? Why was God telling her to go back to that? Well, the angel added, 
I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. God knew Hagar was not going to make it out in the desert by herself. She needed to go back to the protection and provisions of Abraham's household, even if it wasn't ideal, to carry her baby to term, to raise Ishmael there. Before we move on, um, did you notice something familiar in what the angel announced to Hagar? Hagar is the second person in the Bible whom God promises will have numerous descendants, so many that you can't even count them, second after Abraham. That's a huge blessing. Oh, and Hagar is the first person to receive a pre-birth announcement, which makes her son first in a very special company of people who God had important promises for, like Isaac, John the Baptist, Jesus, just to name a few. So in God's eyes, Ishmael was not just some mistake. God had a purpose for Ishmael. And to know what that is, we need to look at what the angel says next. The NIV translation reads like this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hands against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Whoa, okay, that sounds pretty bad, like a curse, right? But it turns out, when you look at the original Hebrew and the context, it's a blessing for Hagar. First off, a wild donkey is not an insult like it sounds in English to us. A wild donkey is free, roams wherever it likes to, and submits to nobody. So God is suggesting that her son is not going to be enslaved like her. Secondly, the fact that Ishmael's hand will be against other people's hands means that he will stand up for himself. Recall how Abraham told Sarah that Hagar was in her hands so Sarah can do whatever she wants to her. And when the angel of the Lord told Hagar to submit to Sarah's authority, the Hebrew literally is to be afflicted under her hand. So God is telling Hagar, your son is not going to be oppressed under others, uh, other people's hands like you have been. Third, that phrase translated as hostility can actually just simply mean to live east of, which later we find out Ishmael and his descendants do. They live east of Isaac, Sarah's son. And they don't seem to be that hostile with each other because when their father, Abraham, dies, Ishmael and Isaac come together and bury him with no hint of conflict. So this is a translation choice depending on how you interpret the story of Hagar. All in all, God is telling Hagar that her son is going to be a free man. And not only that, remember, he's 
blessed to have many descendants to become a nation. If there's any doubt whether God announced a blessing or a curse on Hagar's unborn son, we can just look at the name God gave him, Ishmael. It means God hears. That's an encouraging promise. God heard Hagar's misery. God heard the cries of Hagar's heart, and he came to comfort her. He blessed her. And in response, Hagar named God, you are the God who sees me. You know, there are many biblical figures who name landmarks after encountering God, but Hagar's the only person in the whole Bible who dares to directly name God. And the name that she gives him is incredibly personal. It's because she said, I have now seen the one who sees me, Hagar. When Hagar was running away from Sarah, she probably felt more alone than ever, like no one cared about her, no one heard her cries, no one saw her, no one knew where she was going, but God was with her all along, watching and listening. Hagar trusted God after she saw him, and she returned to Abraham's household and gave birth to Ishmael. Then Ishmael spent his whole childhood in Abraham's home, with his whole family thinking that God's promise was going to be fulfilled by him. God waited until Ishmael was 13 years old before revealing to Abraham and Sarah that his promise was actually for a son Sarah would have the next year. Maybe God held off on that revelation to protect Hagar and Ishmael for the time being. At this time, God also tells Abraham that he would bless Ishmael too, and Ishmael's descendants would become a great nation of 12 rulers. Okay, let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 21. And we get to the part where Sarah gives birth to Isaac and tells Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael so that Isaac doesn't have to share his inheritance. God confirms to Abraham that he should send them away because his promises will be fulfilled through Isaac. And if we stop here, it can seem like God is abandoning Hagar and Ishmael. But God reinforces that Ishmael is going to be blessed to have his descendants become a nation. And that's not going to happen if Hagar and Ishmael remain um, in Abraham's household, treated as slaves. Okay, so the next morning, Abraham gets up, sends Hagar and Ishmael away with some food and a skin of water that Hagar can carry on her shoulders. Can I just highlight how stingy that is? He is so wealthy. He really lets the two of them wander off in the desert with barely anything. That's horrendous. Well, soon they run out of water. No kidding. One skin of water. And Hagar starts crying. And she has the scariest thought a mother could ever have. She thinks that she's going to have to watch Ishmael die. This is now the second time Hagar is out there in the desert, feeling so alone after being betrayed. Abraham had been an involved father in Ishmael's life, and with Hagar, they were operating as some sort of family unit for 13 years. Now that Abraham has 
a newborn with Sarah, he immediately abandons her and their son and won't even properly provide for them, even though he has so much. Ishmael starts crying too. He's 13 years old. He knows what's going on. He knows that they were just abandoned by their family. And he probably knows he was the reason. Not only do Hagar and Ishmael feel alone and helpless, they probably feel worthless and hopeless. Then the Bible says, God heard Ishmael's cries, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. They weren't actually alone, helpless, worthless, or hopeless. Even though all those feelings were valid and totally justified given their circumstances, the truth was that God was with them and he cared about them. But they just couldn't see that. And when we don't see God and how he loves us, those feelings make up our perspective on reality. It says, God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well of water. That well of water was always there. <laughs> that source of life. But she was blind to it until God opened her eyes. The story ends like this. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Later in Genesis, we find out that he did have 12 sons, and they became a powerful people who lived under nobody's rule. And if you remember from last week's story about Joseph, God used the Ishmaelites to save Joseph when, Joseph when Joseph's brothers were about to kill him. God was always with Hagar and Ishmael, and he saw to it that they would one day be free and flourishing. He took the initiative to build a personal relationship with them and gave them the ability to see that he was with them so that they could have the joy of living in his presence. Brothers and sisters, Hagar's tumultuous story can teach us a lot of things, but I just want to leave you with two. One, no matter how you feel, like no one understands what you're dealing with, no one is coming to help you, hold on to the truth that God sees you and hears you. And when you can't sense that, ask for spiritual sight. Rather than judge whether God is with you or not, based on your circumstances, Ask him to open your eyes to see that he sees you, to open your eyes to see the well of water he's placed in front of you, to see that he is your hope in the midst of your suffering, to see that you're not alone because he is with you all the time. That's what he promises. Take God at his word. 
Even when you don't feel him there, have faith that he is with you. It is natural when you feel pain to focus in on it. It takes spiritual sight to see that God is giving us the strength to overcome that pain. It is natural to see what's tangible in the world. It takes spiritual sight to see what's eternal. When our circumstances look terrible, it doesn't mean God has abandoned us. And if somebody else's circumstances look terrible, it doesn't mean God has abandoned them either. So we shouldn't abandon them. That leads me to my second point. If we consider ourselves Christians, we are called to be gracious and kind and generous and loving toward others, hospitable. We have to look beyond ourselves, beyond our lives, to see others and their needs and listen to their cries. Abraham and Sarah received God's favor and amazing promises, but they used their privilege of being chosen by God against Hagar and Ishmael, as though they were worth less. Remember how Pastor Chris talked about how God does not condone favoritism? Hagar's story is not a case of God's favoritism. It is a case of God choosing a few people to redeem all people. God selected Abraham and Sarah, but God didn't only have love for them. God selected Abraham and Sarah to bless the whole world because God so loved the world. It is natural to look at ourselves and then see other people only in how they relate to us, how they benefit us. But it takes spiritual sight to see other people as who they really are, God's beloved creation. And it is natural to build up our lives at the expense of others. It takes spiritual sight to see that we are blessed to bless others. Very simply put, spiritual sight is the way God sees. We have to receive that spiritual sight from him. And with it, we see ourselves and others properly, valuable in his eyes.